0: I'm a techno-optimist in terms of technology's ability to fix the world.
1: Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, we're jumping into the future today and we're doing it with Brett King. Now, Brett King is a futurist. He's an international best-selling author, keynote speaker, startup founder, commentator and host of one of the world's most popular fintech podcasts, Breaking Banks. And banks are what we're going to be talking about a fair bit today, or the financial service sector in general. Brett spent years working across international institutions in this space and is fundamentally of the belief that they need to rapidly transform. In fact, he's gone as far as launching his own disruptor, a mobile bank, called MoveIn, which we'll talk to you all about. Now, Brett's advised the Obama administration on the future of banking. He's spoken in over 50 countries in the last three years on this topic. He's given keynotes for Singularity University, The Economist, you name it. And I think you'll really enjoy his insights around what it takes to drive transformation inside large organizations, what mobile and other technologies mean for the future of customer experience, and what each and every one of us with our eyes to the future need to be paying more attention to in order to be future-proofing. Without further ado, here's Brett King. You've got so many strings to your bow that I'm actually not sure where to start, but I guess we're reading and preparing for this and, and when we've spoken before, there's quite a common thread about disrupting financial services. You're, you're writing um, your own work with your um, the CEO and founder of Moven, your incredibly popular fintech podcast, Breaking Banks. I'm interested for kind of the the origin. What was it that piqued your interest in this space originally?
0: Well, no, I started years ago as a technologist. I started in coding and then um, transitioned. I had a sort of a unique set of skills. Um, And this was back when I was in Oz. um, And I'm sorry for the small dog in the background. But um, (laughs) when... um, I had, I, it turned out I had the ability to communicate with non-technical people, business people and explain technology in a simple way and that was sort of really where I got very, very interested in the intersection between technology and business and technology and society and and really how it was, was going to change us in the future. I. I I'm a, you know, I'm a frustrated futurist in that um, a lot of futurists sort of wish they lived in the future. Um, You know, we're very optimistic about the future because it's the future we'd like to live in with all this tech and stuff. and so, I guess a, a lot of the driver for me is um, trying to build the future that I want.
1: And why, for you, did the banking area and the financial services become such a focus of your attention when it comes to that?
0: Because it was so screwed up, you know. So I left Australia in '99. Um, I went to Hong Kong initially. I was there for uh, well, about six years, six and a half years. Then I went to Dubai, and the financial crisis hit while I was in Dubai, and it was. Pretty brutal. I mean, you probably heard the stories about people in Dubai leaving their Ferraris at the airport and things like that. There was a lot of that sort of stuff that went on. So after the financial crisis hit, I had a a couple of businesses. I had a consulting business around um, you know technology disruption in banking, digital transformation of banking. Um, I'd been I'd done a lot of work with banks, so I was very familiar with their tech stack and the problems they had. I'd worked with HSBC in Hong Kong for many years and others, Citibank, you know, Amex and others and years before that had done work with with banks. in So my banking or financial services domain expertise was high, but of course I was a technologist. And so I saw the potential of the internet and technology to fix a lot of the problems that banking had.
1: I'm interested for for everything you're seeing and talking about where the future needs to go. Have you found you've got a receptive audience?
0: Well, obviously today it's very different than it was a few years ago. Um, I started in the space around the internet era, you know, when the dot-com phenomenon hit. And back then, no, it was massive resistance um, and apathy, um, you know, just weren't interested. Um, And that really continued till about 2013, um, although the resistance sort of tapered off. But Um, There was a collective denial by most senior executives in the space that technology was going to fundamentally change the business. They thought it would augment the business, uh, but they didn't think it would ever be a threat to uh, their business model. I guess the same way Blockbuster didn't think Netflix would be an issue and, you know, the bookstores didn't think Amazon would be a threat, you know, um, that's a fairly typical human reaction. Oh, well, it's been the same for all these years. Why would it ever change?
1: And when you say sort of up to about 2013, was there something in particular that year that that started to change the nature of the conversation where they they bought in to a different degree?
0: I think it was just the realisation that it wasn't going back To the way it was. Um, And consumer behavior was the sort of the leading indicator here. By 2008, the number one day to day way to work with your bank um, was internet. By 2015, it was mobile. So, um, you know, you had a trend that was fairly certain by 2012, 2013, where your day-to-day contact with the bank was going to be dominantly technology-based, not human or branch or or phone or ATM-based. It was dominantly technology-led. And so, therefore, if your interface is technology with your customers, you have to be really competent at that stuff. And as in parallel to that, fintech, of course, took off. And we started to see investment going into fintech. And we started to see some big players making some really solid progress, particularly the likes of Ant Financial out of China, um, you know, transfer-wise. The big billion-dollar, you know, startups, lending club, and so forth, that really came to own a, a segment of the business. And, and just do it really, really well.
1: I'm intrigued because a lot of people see problems or um, challenges. They sit there and they talk about frustrations, be it with the banking sector or anywhere else for that matter. But it's a whole other thing to then step in and go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try and be a part of the solution here. I'm going to I'm going to create my own bank, which is exactly what you've gone and done. I have so many questions about that, but I, but I want to know what, the motivation to do it yourself was originally what what made you get kicked into gear
0: i started moving from a position of being a thought leader in the space after writing um you know a book uh, that really sort of became one of the first books on digital transformation in banking called bank 2.0 that was released uh, in 2010, it became a global bestseller in the space, in category. And, um, you know, when I was on the road talking about Bank 2.0 and, you know, the, the, the digital transformation of banking, there was two things that were sort of the epiphany. One was a lot of people would say, yeah, yeah, it's all very easy to talk about this, but it's really hard to do. And the other thing was I was at a book signing in Los Angeles at this networking breakfast hosted by a media guy called Ken Rutowski out of, uh, out of San Diego, uh, so Santa Monica. And um, I, I was at this breakfast and there was a couple of venture capital guys there and they said, describe for us uh, the bank account of the future. And so... I was saying, well, you know, you you won't go to a bank branch. That's ridiculous. You know, you'll just download it to your phone, or it'll just be embedded in the internet, or the you know the the cloud. We didn't use the term cloud at the time much, but it's just it'll be there. It'll be at, you know your money will be accessible when and where you need it. Your phone will give you advice on how to be financially healthy. You won't have a plastic card. You'll just tap your phone to pay. Um, you know, and then in the future you'll just you know use your voice or artificial intelligence to do it. Um, and this the, one guy is a, a runs Clearstone Ventures, a VC guy. His name uh, William Quigley. He said, "But banks aren't going to be able to do this. They're not going to willingly disrupt themselves." Um, and he was making that observation from seeing other industries. And um, so he said, "Who's going to do it?" And, and I'm like, "I will." And so literally two hours after that meeting had finished, I was at my accommodation uh, staying with a friend in Malibu um, and I had registered the the domain move and bank, move and bank.
1: As I said, so many questions. You're the first person I've met who started a bank. (laughs) How Hard is it to get it up and off the ground?
0: We have two sort of forms of the business. So we have a, you know direct to consumer cardholders uh, in the US. So those numbers are around half a million customers. And then off, then we license our tech to other banks around the world: TD Bank in Canada, Westpac in New Zealand, uh, BCA in Indonesia, etc. And so collectively, there's about five million uh, users on. Our platform across uh, you know six geographies right now, but a couple of new geographies coming online over the next few months. So it's sort of a distributed uh, approach um, in terms of the day to day platform. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, we we started here direct to consumer in the United States. The the most um, challenging part of starting a bank is the fact that it's a regulated business and so a lot of the things that we wanted to do that we how we designed our bank we were the first that had ever done it for example you know we allowed you to sign up in a mobile app and that was in 2012 when we we launched that and no one had ever done that anywhere and so you know we were the first mobile app to allow you to open a bank account in an app. And so the regulators were like, how could you do it without a signature on a piece of paper, you know? And so we had to prove to them that our process of identifying customer was just as robust as someone walking into a branch with a fake driver's license and pretending to be Holly Ransom, right?
1: I can imagine that would have, uh, there would have been a lot of conversations. Was it easier than you might have anticipated to get the regulators on board? Where were your barriers to being able to um, achieve the vision that you had? So
0: mostly it's about getting to the right person and having a very open transparent conversation about what you intend to do and asking them for permission to try you know that's the that that's the, the trick to it banks in general treat the regulators as someone they have to be very careful of because they could get in trouble and so they've developed this approach of well what do the regs say no we can't do that we won't even try right mm-hmm. Um uh, and whereas uh, fintechs and startups, they were like, well, of course we're going to try this. Um, and there's two approaches. They either will go and say to the regulator, hey, we want to try this. Are you guys willing to let us try it? And if it works, let us continue to do it. Um, or they'll just do it and then wait for the regulator to say no, it, like, for example, in the case of Bitcoin. And then, you know, they have to change their business strategy. So, um, you know, we we were pretty proactive. We went to the federal regulators, uh, you know, um, the Fed, the F- FDIC, the CFPB, all these acronyms that they have in the United States, like the RBA um, Reserve Bank in Australia, and we just we went and, and told them what we're going to do and asked them if we could try it. And our approach was: look, let us try it with ten thousand customers. Um, we'll give you progress reports all along the way. If you've got any concerns, you let us know. We'll modify our strategy, but let us try it. And if it works, if it's not, if it doesn't um, risk customers financial health or it doesn't risk the market, then um, we hope you'll let us continue to do
1: it. And and linking back to a comment you made earlier around one of your strengths being about your ability to communicate effectively about technology, how important do you think that communication piece is when it comes to innovation and trying to get engagement and traction for new ideas?
0: Well, one of the key things is getting buy-in, you know, from the various stakeholders. And Human nature as it is doesn't particularly like change. Most people don't like, particularly in their life where they're comfortable or in their job, they don't like to think that suddenly all of that's going to change and they're not going to have a a reference uh, by which to, to work things out. And so helping people go through that process of understanding, A, it's inevitable, and B, the only way you get to play in this new world is by willingly participating in it. Or being displaced you know um, and so I mean I'm I, I've been uh, before I started moving I've been this guy that's been out there talking for 20 years about how technology is inevitably going to change the way you do your business and Talking about how to adapt to that, and um, you know, I guess I just, I, I, you know, I'm passionate about the fact that the world can be a better place if we use technology in the right way.
1: What do you think are some of the most important tips that you've got for leaders listening who are in that struggle in an organisation trying to mobilise change? What what advice have you got for them?
0: Well, it's very hard to really get anything done unless you've got senior executive buy-in. You know, and I'm talking board level CEO um, you know if you're in a bank uh, or a retail bank for example the retail ex co or executive committee as as we we call them it's very very hard to Really, accomplish anything meaningful unless you've got the senior exec buy-in. So, you know, for a lot of managers, then you know, um, we call them the the uh, and I executives. You know, they've got and innovation in their title. You know, or um, you know, the, the the head of innovation or the VP of innovation, as they have them out here. They've got this division that's supposed to create innovation, but really, the reality is, unless the CEO really buys into it and endorses it. Unless there's a systemic approach to it in the organisation, then you know you can only do fractional stuff. You can get an app out, maybe a new app or a new feature or something like that, but you can't make the organisation be more innovative as as one guy running an innovation department because essentially, um, you know, it's like trying to turn the ship. You know, and um, mm. uh, you know these banks are like big you know, oil tankers in the ocean, they take a long time to turn and they've got a lot of momentum. And, um, you know, the startups, the reason they're so successful at innovating is they're more like a speedboat in that analogy. They can, um, you know, they can pivot very quickly because they're just not married to the same processes. In banks, one of the big problems you've got is it's not just the fact that you've got people who, are used to doing things a certain way, but you've actually got systems, you know, mainframe systems that were built 30, 40 years ago that have essentially hard-coded these processes into the business. So, you don't have to just change a process or just change the culture, you also have to change the underlying technology because... For example, it says if you're applying for a bank account, you must have an application form that has these details, and um, that's how you do it. You know, if you want to apply for a credit card, then we need you to submit this information to plug it into our engine, so it can spit out the at the other end that uh, you you're not a bad credit risk. But the reality is, we can approach that in a you know a thousand different ways today that are a whole lot better than asking you to fill out a form.
1: Absolutely, I and mean, when you go into organisations and you're trying to get that that buy in. Uh, for understanding the urgency for change and really needed to be thinking about how they're picking up this technology piece and running with it. What, what's your favourite data point or or anecdote that points to the technological change that's going on in the world or where it is the future's heading that you kind of use to almost shock them into gear?
0: Well, you know, I, I mean, I use a few different stories. Um, you know, I do tend to, uh, you know, I've been on the speaking circuit now for a decade uh, talking about this stuff um, in, in front of some you know, quite significant Audiences, and so you do hone the storytelling capability, which makes the uh, the message easier to deliver. But probably the key one uh, that I give, which is really the first uh, chapter of Augmented, you know, my, my not my current book, but my last book before that, uh, is the story of technology disruption over the last 300 years. When you look at the printing press, you look at the steam machine, you look at railways, telegraph, uh, telephone, um, you know, internet, the production, uh, production line on the factory floor, et cetera. When you look at all of these technology advancements or innovations, The one thing that is absolutely clear is that in the last 300 years, technology, no one has ever been able to stop technology from being disruptive. Um, And the number of businesses that have successfully maintained their business model in the face of technology disruption is exactly zero. When you look at it in that way, if you're saying to me, but we're different, there is absolutely no historical evidence to suggest that would ever be likely, right? So as a result, if you accept the inevitability of technology change, then you have, you know, the better path is not to say we're going to fight it until we're displaced or put out of a job or out of business. Um, the better way to approach it is say, all right, how can we leverage this technology to proactively change our business?
1: Absolutely. And in Augmented, you talk about um, four key disruptive themes, AI, experience design, smart infrastructure and health tech. What are some of the extraordinary ways that you see those four frontiers changing business as we know it?
0: Well, I think, you know, it's going to change more than business. I think it's going to change the way we live. I mean, just, mm-hmm. um, you know, health tech's an obvious one. Um, you know, the two, there's two portions this. One is uh, diagnosis and increasingly... Uh, you know, competent artificial intelligence and algorithms that can diagnose uh, you know, the different data points to determine if you're sick or you need treatment. So that's one piece. So things like um, you know, we might start off with a heart rate sensor that we wear in a smartwatch, but then we marry that with artificial intelligence. And now you've got something that can predict whether you're going to have a heart attack. We had a recent uh, news news media report in the US because they have this weird healthcare system in the US where every, everybody has to pay, uh, you know, huge amounts of money to receive basic care here. Um, and and uh, you, you had someone that were, went in with a heart attack, had four stents put in, and he, he got a bill for $239,000. Now, so if you think about the future world and you think about, well, if I have a $50 sensor or, you know, probably $5 sensor once we uh, improve them in a wristwatch or in my clothing that can track my heart rate and I marry that with a uh, artificial intelligence on maybe a subscription service, uh, you know, bundled with my phone, $0.99 cents a month or something like that, and um, so that, you know, that smartwatch I bought and the $0.99 cents a month subscription means that now I've got a device that can predict if I'm going to have a heart attack tech maybe two years out and say hey you know um you got to go and go to the gym or change your eating habits uh, so that you don't have an issue with your heart in conjunction with a you know a physician and that's going to save huge amounts of money but also you know the certainty of being able to manage that situation instead of having a cardiac event is is huge uh, the other one is of course gene therapy gene editing so we've got this capability now, uh, which we learn through bacteria and viruses, of being able to, uh, you know, basically cut and paste DNA parts of our DNA, uh, our genome. And so you've got a specific gene, for example, that turns a protein on and off, or um, and that protein will then uh, trigger a certain uh, disease, like uh, cystic fibrosis or hemochromatosis, or uh, you know, cardiac disease that's genetic, or uh, breast cancer or something like that. So if we can turn that gene off or on appropriately, then essentially what we're doing is we're editing a bug out of our genetic software that causes a genetic disease or a genetic, genetic condition that's been passed down from our parents. So instead of treating Parkinson's or Alzheimer's with drugs, we will just remove the potential for the disease from your genome. I mean, just think about how that's going to change the world. It, um, it just, oh, hugely. It's just mind-blowing in terms of potential. So that's just a couple of areas. You know, you throw in autonomous uh, vehicles, You throw in um, urbanisation of city, uh, urban farming, rather, in cities. You throw in distributed solar energy and renewable energy grids. Um, You know, there's so many areas which are going to just change the way we live. It's incredible.
1: I love that. And there's such an optimistic tone to everything you've talked about there. What are some of the challenges you think we've got to be ready for as well when it comes to those phenomena?
0: Well, um, the rate of change is rapid and it seems to be speeding up over time and we can see this through certain data points. One data point I refer to historically is what we call the adoption um, diffusion curve. So um, this is how quickly within society people adopt new technology. So if you go back to something like you know the telephone or television, right? Then uh, to get to mass market adoption where you've got more than half the population using it on a daily basis, we're talking really about, you know, 40, 50 years um, to get to that point of adoption. But for technologies like or phenomenon like Facebook, for example, you got to that same level of adoption in just two years. So you have this time compression this compression of adoption, as we get more and more used to technology in our world, new phenomena, new technologies, new developments come along, take less and less time for people to uh, adopt them into their lives, which means that if you're a business, if you if you were running a business in 1920 and you saw the telephone emerge, it wouldn't have mattered if you did or didn't adopt the telephone. But today, if you're a business that has the ability, to, like, you know, uh, you're a restaurant business um, and you do delivery and you don't have, you're not plugged into an app ecosystem that allows you to take orders through an app rather than someone calling up your pizza shop and, and um, giving you an order over the phone, then you'll be out of business. So this really comes back to, and the the problem for businesses is the same as us individually when it comes to things like artificial intelligence. Your ability to reinvent yourself and adapt is going to become a core skill in the future. So your ability to learn new skills, change your career, this idea that you'll go to university, you'll learn a job or a you know career path, and you'll be on that career till you retire, that's. You know, that's something that we have to disabuse ourselves of that concept. It's just not going to be like that in the future. So your ability to adapt and learn is is going to be critical for your survival skills in the future.
1: Absolutely. And when you look around the world, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is part of your job is being ahead of the curve and being able to help guide people as to some of the trends and new phenomena they've got to be bracing for. What do you do to stay alive to what's going on in the world? What do you read? Where do you intentionally kind of take yourself so that you're continually at the cutting edge and across where the world's going?
0: Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a sci-fi geek. So sci-fi is great in inform, informing sort of longer term trends, sort of 30, 50 years out. So I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Sci-fi authors in the space, um, you know, one, you know, guys like Ramesh Nam, who run the, won the Philip K. Dick Award a couple of years ago, very practical, uh, pragmatist in the in the energy space. Has recently been in Australia talking about how Australia is the the best possible market to develop solar energy um, in the world, and it's just so frustrating to see the lack of uh, progress there. Um, uh, uh, or, um, you know, David Brin, who's a really interesting political commentator on sort of, you know, what's happening with Trump and Brexit and things like that right now and why this is happening and, you know, where we are in that cycle. Sci-fi authors tend to view the world in a very interesting way. So that's, you know, I, I, they're a great source for me. Um, in addition, um, you know, I, I'm obviously plugged in you know on Twitter with all the major sort of tech news and things like that and Some of the key people that I follow are are really interesting in that space and, that's where I sort of get the leading indicators. But most of it's about just understanding it on a trending perspective.
1: I feel like it would be remiss of me, given I have someone that's so across banking, not to ask you for a comment around the Royal Commission we've got going on in Australia at the moment, sort of a decade on from the global financial crisis. When it comes to the lessons learned across the industry in terms of culture, conduct, leadership, What's your assessment of where things are at at the moment?
0: So I th- think we've still got uh, somewhere to go. The fact is that you know, banks weren't hurting um, for that long. They weren't hurting enough that they've radically changed their um, business model. So it's, it's back to business as usual in many cases with the largest banks in the world you know, making record profits again. And until there is a fundamental change in economics, um, then I don't think you're going to get significant change in business practice. We are starting to see that, though, in in China, for example, the phenomenon of Ant Financial, um, Alipay, Tencent, WeChat, and the businesses that that has spawned has created um, real fear. Amongst the incumbents in China because they have seen material changes in customer behavior They've seen China go from a a cash rich cash-dependent society over the the space of three and a half, four years to cashless, basically, in urban centres. They've seen 40% of deposits come out of banks and go into these uh, digital ecosystems. So you are having a a real dramatic change. So I think the the canary in the coal mine for retail banks in uh, places like Australia, is um, you know, just measuring the economics of the way you, ca- you conduct your business. And if you are dependent on someone walking into a bank building and signing a piece of paper to open a bank account, very quickly, because of what's happened with digital, very quickly we're going to find that the economics of that business are no longer viable. And so you've got banks like HSBC globally right now shutting down retail businesses all around the world because they haven't been able to change the fundamental way they customers, um, their retail business. Deutsche Bank is another example. We have some new competitors coming into the market. And I think over time that these challenger banks are definitely changing the the economics of day-to-day banking. And once that changes, the stock market will respond. If you understand inevitably where the technology is taking us, I track it on two sort of axes. So the first axis is physical distribution versus digital distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that that's a global phenomenon in every industry. We're seeing it affecting retail with Amazon taking over the retail space in, in the US and JC is the Sears and these guys in trouble, their business is shrinking. It happened with uh, video and TV, you know, et cetera, right? So it's happening in every sector with a a distribution element. Then the second axis is friction, the amount of friction it takes to access a product or get a service. So in banking is one of the highest friction businesses because of the the risk and compliance and, and regulation around that. So, digital is attacking the friction. So, you go from a high friction environment to a low latency, low friction, super low friction environment where you can get access to credit, move money instantly based on a technology solution. So, if you were to put those two axes on a graph, then, you know, and you move up the graph. Where you're getting to is a completely digital distribution system with very low latency, real-time solutions around your money. And that's the world we're inevitably moving to. Everything tells us we're moving in that direction. And so, in that instance, what is a bank? Well, the bank is embedded in your world. It, it's intelligent. It knows what money you spend. It knows where you are, what you're doing. If you need access to credit, you don't need to apply for a credit card. You know, if you walk into a grocery store and you swipe your debit card today, and you, you know your salary hasn't, the account has declined. You go fishing for another card to pay, but what if you when you walk in Coles or Woolies in Australia, you get a message on your smartphone saying, "You know you normally spend four hundred Australian dollars when you go grocery shopping at Coles here, but today you've only got three hundred dollars in your account. Would you like an extra hundred dollars to complete your complete your grocery shopping today?" You know, um, and so you you don't need. A plastic card, you don't need an application form. You don't need to go to a branch. It's just it's there with you when and where you need it. So that's what the bank will become, this intelligent artifact embedded in your world when and where you need money movement, money advice and, you know, financial wellbeing.
1: So it might be quite interrelated to what you've just touched on there, but when it comes to technology, what are the conversations you feel like we're not having in business? Or I guess to frame it another way, if you could put a topic on every leader's strategic agenda for their risk meeting, for their, their key organizational strategy conversations, what would you say this is what you have to be talking about?
0: I think probably the first question you have to ask is are we going to partner with organisations that have this competency and and that's the way we're going to build it or are we going to become a technology company ourselves? So that, that's really the only two paths you can go. You can either say we're going to reinvent ourselves as a technology business because all the leading players in this business in the future will be technology first. They'll be technology first and banking second, right? So you either can become a technology company or you get technology companies as partners who have the expertise to build what you, what you uh, need. And, and they're really the only two paths to the future. So far. I think that's probably the, the, the discussion you need to be having in the organisation. Not every bank in the world will be able to become a digital bank. It's just, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's too much legacy, there's too much friction, there's too much legacy thinking and culture that will resist it like a virus, like an immune system resisting a virus, right? And and so the reality is everyone talks about being a digital bank but very few will ever get there. You know, I, I have in bank 4.0, a checklist, a 14-point checklist of um, basically assessing whether you um, can make it as a digital bank. And I start with, is your CEO a technologist, right? If your CEO started as a teller in the bank and has never been involved in technology and he's the head of your bank today, like HSBC CEO, then you're never going to get there with him at the helm because he just doesn't have the skills to
1: it. Calling it like it is.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I don't shy away from it.
1: No, you don't. It's part of what I love about you. Um, I wanted to touch on, you talked about how it's going to be so much um, more important for all of us to be able to uh, relearn, uh, change career, adapt, Uh, I will find that you've led a really entrepreneurial career. I'm so impressed by the different direction you've taken it in, your expansion into, you know, consulting, writing, podcasting, uh, keynote speaking, you name it. What's one bit of advice you've got from your own career that you'd offer to people who are thinking about that idea of lifelong learning um, and adapting and changing in line with the times that we're living in?
0: a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, look look at Elon Musk or Steve Jobs as examples. They really do want to make the world a better place. And so find a problem. Find somewhere where people are sick of the status quo or that people's lives need to be fixed and changed and, you know, figure out a way that technology might be able to do that. I'm a techno-optimist in terms of technology's ability to fix the world i mean technology i think will fix disease it'll remove disabilities remove poverty it'll make sure it, it'll give everyone an education these are the this is the potential that technology has for the world so what you're going to do is find a problem and and figure out a way that technology can
1: solve it and final question i'm very grateful for your time and i found it absolutely fascinating being able to talk to you at length about the work that you're doing and the trends that you're seeing I, we would love to leave um, on Coffee Pods with a call to action. So I'd love to ask if you could leave our listeners with an encouragement to put down their earbuds and go and do something, what would that be?
0: For me, the uh, process of getting in an aircraft and having to navigate, particularly around New York Air um, requires my absolute uh, concentration. So my brain, you know, my, my tech brain, my startup brain switches off completely and I'm able to absorb myself in that. So find something that... Um, you can be absorbed in that is not you know that that will get your brain thinking in different ways learning new pathways doing something that you can't currently do go out and and learn a new skill Uh, you know I, I think that's an important factor for ongoing happiness is that ability to absorb new information and and you know, achieve new things.
1: Sort of that step in the direction of what you were talking about earlier too. If you can learn comfortably new skills, then you'll be comfortable, you know, learning new jobs and stepping into new careers and taking on new challenges, um, which, as you said, is sort of one of the best ways we can future-proof ourselves.
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, learn to code or... I don't know, um, you know, learn to fly a drone, um, you know, just do do something, you know, just go ahead and learn something new.
1: Brilliant. Well, Brett King, thank you so much for joining us. For those who are looking to connect with you or are wanting more information about what you're doing, where can they find you?
0: So, of course, you can go to King.com is my uh, primary uh, bio website. You can check me out on Twitter at Brett King. Uh, Brett King- Author on Facebook, and of course, go to my uh, new book, uh, check it out on Amazon, Bank 4.0, um, or go to my website, bank4.0. That's bank4dot0.com and check out the new book and uh, hopefully everyone um, listening to this podcast will go and buy it and we'll get back up to number one
1: in Australia. We'll do what we can. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us, Brett. It's been a treat. You're welcome. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Ransom leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.